Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is technology and how we use it, in some cases how we abuse it, particularly in talking about fellow Christians. We want to talk a little bit about social media and etiquette and the way in which we interact with each other and what that uh, says to people who, who interact over media and look at how Christians interact with one another. And my guest today is Gary Brashears, who is Professor of Theology, that's theology of all kinds, systematic, biblical, and any other category you can throw into theology at Western uh, Seminary in Portland, Oregon. So he's with us by Skype with all the technological disadvantages that come with that. So that's, I guess, where we start. Sometimes uh, technology is, is great, and, but sometimes it can, it can kill us. So uh, um, let, let me start off this way, um, and, and I'm going to have a little bit of fun just to launch in, and that is, um, is technology in the Bible? I mean, uh, and then how do we talk about it? Let's, uh, let's talk about the, I guess, uh, technically speaking, the hermeneutics of even addressing this topic from a biblical angle. Actually, technology is in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 11, we see that the people at Babel have gotten some new technology. They've got the brick and they've got a mortar of a different kind and they're able to put together the Tower of Babel, and that's new technology. To update the story, all I have to do is put in an iPhone 6 or iPhone 7, and we've got it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that was an answer I wasn't anticipating, so that's good. That means you're going to be a great I, I conversation. Read the, I read the Bible, Daryl. I read the Bible. <laughs> uh, it's true. Technology is uh, is about the way in which we put things together and, uh, and the various ways we go about achieving that, and of course, part of the creation mandate is the idea that we are supposed to manage the creation that God God has given us and and to be uh, creative about the means by which that comes about. So so um, I'll accept your uh, your biblical rootage there, and uh, um, hopefully what we have to say turns out better than just the Tower of Babel, but you never know. Um, uh, of course, technology has really revolutionized the way in which people live. I can think about, and I suspect you have similar feelings. When I started teaching, and I, I'm in my 33rd year at Dallas, I don't know how long you've been at Western, but probably about as long or longer. 35. Yeah. Um, uh, when I started teaching, the idea of being able to look up resources on your computer <clears throat> was didn't exist. Nope. Um, you know, we used uh, telephones, <laughs> which uh, with we, cords. That's with cords. That's right. We, everything was wired in, and uh, you know, cordless telephones were still 15 years away. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's amazing to think about the differences that have been introduced, really, even in just the last 10 years. I like to tell this story um, about the way technology works. When I did my first trip overseas to do doctoral studies, so we're talking early 80s, the way I kept up with American sports was by listening to Armed Forces Radio on a shortwave. Okay? Yeah. That, that's step one. Seven years later, I went back to Germany for my first sabbatical. And I could listen to it on the radio over the internet, just barely, but could do it. And the way I could do it is I could watch a scoreboard, flip the score as the game was going on if I wanted to keep up with what was going on. So it wasn't even – it wasn't radio, it was, just, it was just visual graphics. The next time I went back, I had radio over the internet. That was seven years later. Seven years later, I had audio and video, uh, sometimes black and white. And the last time I went, of course, I had full color, in fact, even HD. I mean, I, I could have been in my living room as far. Yeah. So uh, that is kind of the story of the progression of what we're dealing with. I suspect you have similar experience in your own, in, in your own working with, with all this. Yeah, it's the same thing when I was teaching Ukraine the first time. I went downtown and bought an Internet card that would get me 2.4 kilobyte connection. 
<laughs> and uh, the last time I was there, like you, I had full HD and I could talk to my wife as easy as I could sitting next to her in the living room almost. Yeah, it really is in many ways amazing how the whole um, technological scene has developed and how we uh, do so much now uh, through that. I mean, to the point now that a lot of people are able to work remotely uh, from their oh, yeah. work. My son is uh, does uh, sports law from Man- from Manhattan, but he works for a firm in Munich, and everything just about is done uh, from a distance and, and without any problem. And of course, it's impacted education. Uh, online classes, et cetera, have changed the way we think and are changing the way we think about education. Yep. So it, it literally is omnipresent. Um, and so so you think about this as a theologian, and theology is supposed to deal with everyday life as we meet it. Uh, and so uh, what do you have to, to say to people who, who, you know, obviously participate in technology but are trying to think about how do I, how do I think about this in terms of the, what, what the Bible has to say? Well, Scripture, of course, doesn't say anything specific about the Internet, and it doesn't say a whole lot about libraries, for that matter, though there were libraries in the ancient world and well-known ones, and they're referred to occasionally in Scripture. But a big advantage of the Internet has been the access to information uh, on all kinds of different levels. I mean, I just routinely download podcasts from the best Christian preachers in the world. We appreciate that promotion. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I can cyberstalk my students, and I do, and uh, let them know that that wasn't very good, or this is really outstanding. Uh-huh. Uh, so we have, through libraries, now we have full text access to much of the information in the world, and I don't have to walk across campus to the library. Yeah, I, 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 I literally had this conversation last week in our department because we were informed that the Loeb Classical Library, which of course is the great collection of Greco-Roman yeah. works and Latin works from the classics, is now available online to us. And so, you know, I've got, I've got like 150 volumes in my library at home in my study, and you know, bought. I just recently have gone about you know gradually building it up to the point. And I said to my wife, "I'm done buying those uh, because I can, I can look it up. I can write and travel, and if I have to look something up, most anything that I need, I can now get access to, without having to go to a library. It really has changed the way um, academics work." The other thing that has not changed, however, is the ability to people to process information accurately. And that's been a downside. People uh, cite as if they know what they're doing when they don't. Yeah, that's true. And the, the capability of misinformation to, cir- to circulate through uh, the Internet uh, is really a problem. And it's even more a problem when people just post what they have heard or said and there's no attribution or anything uh, put with it. So you don't know where it's coming from, what, what the sourcing is, uh, whether it's accurate, all kinds of things. I mean, some people think if it's on the net, it must be true, but um, that's not true at all. Yeah. One of the things that's been really interesting for me to watch is how now in the day of Internet access and archiving of everything, it's virtually impossibly forgiven or to change what you're doing. Uh, you've always been, uh, memory has always been there, but in the Internet age, once you're identified with a certain kind of personality, you can never change that, it seems like, because somebody always goes back and looks at the old stuff and cites it as if it was done last year. Yeah, it, it, it is a, a different way of existing, and it also means that uh, most conversations, that many of which used to be private, are no longer private. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so you always have someone looking over your shoulder about what it is you're saying and how you say it. Uh, and what it means, and so uh, I tell people when uh, there's this message that I do. Uh, it's it's the contrast between Romans one and Acts seventeen, and how Paul functions yeah. in a in a in a pluralistic world. And I make the point when he's writing in Romans one, it's kind of insider talk. He's talking to the church from the inside, and he's telling you exactly what he thinks about the culture uh, because this letter is going 
to the church. And granted, it ended up in the Bible, which means it did have a very public um, set of eyes looking at it. But basically, in terms of Paul's intention, he was trying to talk to the church about the way the culture was around them. Whereas when we come to Acts 17, he's speaking publicly. He knows he's speaking publicly. The audience is a part of the culture that he's talking about. And so his entire approach is different, uh, not that his theology is different. He still challenges them with what he believes, but the way he goes about it is very different. And the point I make when I talk about this passage today is, is that we can't have clean, oftentimes clean exchanges like that where we know what the audience is that, that is listening to us because our audience inevitably is broad once we go onto the net. That's correct. Yeah, emails and letters that are sent via the internet, none of that is ever erased from the internet anymore. Ironically, when I want to do confidential conversations now, I always do it by voice over a telephone. That's much less likely to be uh, mineable on the internet. Yeah, and you just hope the government isn't listening. So, uh, <laughs> uh, with today's government, I mean, what could they do with it anyway? Yeah, that's right. So, well, I won't go there. Um, so, it, so there really is a, a major uh, uh, problem in terms of how we interact with one another, and that really is the gist of what we want to get to. I mean, obviously there are uh, tons of benefits from being able to stay in communication with people, to stay connected over a distance in particular. Uh, I mean, I think the whole Facebook phenomena is an, is an interesting way of, of interacting. I like to tell people who are my age, and when we talk about this, particularly in relationship to education, that, um, you know, we're, we grew up used to a certain way of relating, and we had to adjust to the right. introduction of technology. My kids, who are now in their 30s, really grew up with technology from the very beginning. In fact, our household experimented was was picked out to be an experimentation for the first um, uh, games over the internet that you shared with a neighbor who wasn't there in your house, and we were hooked up and and asked to do this, and so my my two girls and our son, you know, were part of this growing up group that that uh, played games over the internet uh, with with their friends um, online back in the 80s when it was first being developed. And and so they've grown up with this. They, this is how they've related all their life. There's no adjustment. It's the way they do it. They do it instinctively. Again, just to share another story, I once was writing a book and was getting ready to look something up, and I was, my son recognized I was getting up to go to my library to look up something, and he said, Dad, you don't have to go out to your library. He was yep. aware of what I was doing, and I said, what? And he typed into his computer, and lo and behold, boom, there it was. And he instinctively knew yep. that. Um, so it's clear we have a lot of information that's, that uh, we have access to, but the flip side of that is, of course, the quality and nature of that information. So how do we get ourselves into trouble in the net? I guess that's kind of the, the, what I'm asking. And uh, uh, you might share, if you will, some of your experience in this regard. Mm -hmm. I, I've been watching this for a long time. And what, one of the things that happens is what I call the Pat Robertson syndrome. Uh, those of us are a little older, remember when Pat Robertson was a national figure, uh, 700 Club and all that. But he got a reputation for being somebody who said outrageous things, so people would just watch him. And of course, he spoke a lot, and inevitably, being a... Um, a powerful polarizing speaker, he would say something really, really stupid, and then that would be picked out and played everywhere. Mm -hmm. And there's a sim, there's a, I don't know what to call it exactly, a, a genre really on the internet that is that kind of a thing. Uh, it's a celebrity gossip magazine that we see in the checkout stand at the grocery store. It's where you get it's, yourself. You know, there's got you journalism, exactly. but this is where you get yourself. Yeah. But there's a group of that that does that around celebrity pastors, and they just wait for them to say something, and then they go outrage ballistic, can you believe what's being said, and it's all taken out of a context of a ministry and a life, uh, and it can be extremely, extremely damaging. Hmm. 
And uh, we, we've seen some examples of this uh, recently. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and as we get into this, the point is not to say that, that some of the criticism that leaders get for how they handle the net and, and the things that they say uh, you know, may well be deserved. The question right. is whether the, the beating that they take uh, mm-hmm. in the process is deserved and, and, and what that means for us. And in thinking about what you're talking about, that there are people who's, who stalk these kinds of opportunities, uh, let me raise a scenario that I'm very aware of, um, and that is there are, um, there are bands of atheists out there whose goal is to undercut anything positive that happens in the church. Yep. And uh, they oftentimes, you talk about cyber-stalking, they often keep their eyes out for any kind of opportunity like this that they can exploit and pass through the net. I know that goes on. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, sometimes you think that the conversation you're having with the person on the other edge of, of Facebook or on the other end of the blog that you're writing is, is uh, another believer and you're kind of having an in-house conversation when, in fact, oftentimes you're not. That's correct. Yeah, the recent episode with Louis Giglio, when he was invited initially to do a prayer at President Obama's inauguration, mm-hmm. so he went back and found a sermon that he had done 15 years earlier where he had spoken about homosexuality as a sin, and that was trumpeted, and it ended up with his invitation being withdrawn because he was a person who could not be accepted in the public arena. It's crazy. Yeah, and despite all the public ministry and service ministry that Louis had done, uh, and, oh. and it was the reason for the original invitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all torpedoed by one statement that he'd made way earlier in a totally different context. That's the evil of the internet, and it can be done by anybody. Mm-hmm. I think what Christians did to Rick and Warren after his son committed suicide in the depth of his depression. The hate speech that came back to him, the public blasting that came back on them, uh, it was just, it's an, it's an embarrassment and a shame to see what happened to that couple. Yeah, and, and, uh, and I think people have got to realize that they have oh, some responsibility for handling their public discourse responsibly yes. uh, when these kinds of, of situations uh, come up. It, it, I, the reason I wanted to discuss this topic is because I actually find it very, very disturbing in terms of where the, where the church is. Uh, another incident, since we're um, trotting out incidents right now, yep. is my recollection of the way World Vision was handled when they went through their yes. their yes. Uh, decision-making process, first initially to allow gay people to be hired, and then when they changed their decision. And just the reaction that people had about that entire sequence of events, as as if, uh, as you said earlier, it's almost as as if um, I'll say it this way vividly: uh, it's almost as if repentance doesn't count. Um, That's correct. You know uh, that a person comes out and says, "I made a mistake. This was the wrong move. Uh, I, I've listened to the feedback. I've corrected the way I think, but it doesn't matter. The elephant." The, the elephant with memory is in the room. Yep. Yeah, another example of that same thing was when Wycliffe was uh, dragged out in the public for translation philosophy into a sub-Saharan African dialect that nobody in the world speaks, but it was rumored how they had translated Son of God and had dropped the language Son of God, and people went ballistic about that. and. A very high-quality organization, Wycliffe Bible Translators, was uh, was attacked viciously, and some major groups dropped support for Wycliffe over something they really knew nothing about. But it's easy to get outraged because they don't care about the Son of God anymore. Yeah, because it get it, the the thing that really makes this difficult is uh, these kinds of moves get soundbited, if I can yep. coin a phrase. Um, and in that process, the one line, uh, uh, Wycliffe isn't using Son of God anymore, or has taken Son of God out of the Bible, whatever, however you want to spin that, ends up uh, uh, casting a huge shadow over any of the details as to 
why that is or the linguistic issues that were involved and that kind of thing. We actually did an entire podcast on the Son of God controversy, translation controversy, in part uh, to try and get the issues out on the table so that people right. would actually understand what was going on here and and not succumb to the, to the easy one-liner. Uh, when in a context, you know, the other thing that's in the background here is is almost this, I don't know, fear or paranoia, I'm not sure what the right word is, or anger or frustration, it's probably a combination of all these things, come into play that drives the move to try and, um, uh, and criticize in these kinds of ways. That's correct. Uh, a recent example, of course, is the whole thing with Mars Hill Church uh, in Seattle. And the, the controversy that raged up there for, oh, six, eight months, very publicly, uh, one of the things that I found just uh, very distressing in that whole situation, of course, I'm close to it, I know mm -hmm. many people up there and work closely with a number of them, uh, were the public bloggers uh, were accusing uh, Mark Driscoll and top leadership there of bullying and mishandling funds. Uh, and there was some legitimacy, of course, to their charges, but the way they were doing it, ironically, was bullying. And if you look at the side ads on their blogs, they were making enormous amounts of money from groups that I would never be associated with uh, because of web traffic on their blog. Hmm. And somehow the self-criticism that says, I'm doing what I'm charging the person with and profiting from it, uh, I, that's just a real problem for me. That hmm. is a problem for me because I, I look at the text of Scripture and it talks about slander and gossip as strongly as it talks about immorality and mishandling of power. Yeah, because you're dealing with people and their reputations and, the, yes. and, and there's supposed to be a respect, I would say, for someone made in the image of God that they're handled fairly, justly, if you want to put it in a biblical category. Um, and and so the way we interact with one another, the tone that we bring to the conversations that we have actually is very, very important. And we have something going on tonally in our culture in which I'm afraid that sometimes the church is mirroring what happens in the culture at large in terms of how people get treated. And the church is supposed to be different in terms of how we engage. When I look at Galatians chapter 5 and it talks about the acts of the flesh, and we begin with porneia and impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. We get all that. But it goes on to talk about hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions. Uh, those things are in there just as much. Ephesians chapter 4, it says in your anger, do not sin. Mm -hmm. Because you give the devil a foothold. And in it, Romans 1, you've got gossip yep. right there in the list. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another. Boy, does that describe the blogosphere these days? I don't think so. Yeah. It, 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 it is a disturbing uh, trend, I think, and it's, it, it undercuts um, not just the, the benefits of technology in such a way, but it really injects a... Um, I don't know what other word to use, it's stuck in my head, a poison into the relationships that people have about the church, the way they think about the church, et cetera. Now, this is not to say that there isn't a place for legitimate criticism and engagement when when the church fails. It'd be a, oh, absolutely. Be a compl absolutely. complete misread yeah. of what we're talking about to yeah. say, no, the, ch the church gets a pass on all this. Absolutely no. not. No. There's all kinds of stuff in Scripture about entertaining accusations against our First Corinthians or First Timothy chapter five. Uh, the, one of the telling passages is First Corinthians chapter six, where it says, "Don't take your disputes to the public court for judgment." Mm -hmm. Now, at that point, he's talking about the law court, but today we take them to the court of the internet and the public arena, and that it becomes slander uh, and gossip. It seems many times when those kinds of controversies should be dealt within the, the elder structures of the church and with the, perhaps within the denominational structures instead of taking it out on the internet. Yes, well I think that what we see here is, is and this is important, to distinguish between the right to criticize and the way to criticize, and even the way to criticize well and appropriately and, and, and biblically, if I can say it that way, 
and and the way in which uh, sometimes this gets done, in which uh, the right thing may be challenged, but in a very wrong way, and That's and, and and it's a very very um, dangerous kind of precedent when we when our goal is to absolutely try and and pull someone. Uh, down uh, without the appropriate uh, processes in place. It's very true. Uh, when I look at what happened, for example, the Mars Hill thing, which is very recent, I, I see with the, uh, the eventual resignation of Mark Driscoll and all that was involved there, and then the, now the dissolving of the entire corporation and handing everything off to individual churches. Ironically, the thing that accomplished that uh, was not the blogosphere, uh, was not the gossip out on the, uh, the public arena. It was actually done by elders of the church who did it according to biblical standards, but the, the environment of the internet made that a very toxic environment and a very uh, dishonoring environment, though there's the opportunity there to show the grace of God in, the, in what's coming out of that. That toxic environment where anger was a virtue is a very unchristian atmosphere, it seems to me. Interesting. So, uh, your your premise would be that the way in which this eventually happened was through the appropriate elder oversight that that took place. Now, what would you say to the person who would say, "Yeah, but the only reason the elders really eventually took a hard look at that was because of the immense pressure that came on Mars Hill as a result of all the blogging and everything else that was going on." I, being very close to many people involved in the Mars Hill episode, I'd say that's a statement of ignorance. It act, the public arena actually made it more difficult to do what was being done by the former and current elders and by a couple of outside uh, involved people like Paul Tripp. It was actually done as an internal thing. The, the blogosphere actually made it more difficult uh, because people became very defensive relating to each other. Okay, so the, in other words, it so damaged the atmosphere that getting at actually what was going on became more difficult. That's correct. And reconciliation was much more difficult because every statement was exported. Uh, there was actually an inside source that was uh, intentionally and deliberately removing privacy statements and feeding it out into sources in the public arena. Interesting. Um, so, uh, and and this raises a whole other issue, and that is the way in which the internet can become a megaphone, if you will, yep. for uh, what's going on internally and where 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 things are being sorted out uh, sensitively, et cetera. It's it's not that different. If I can make an analogy, it's not that different than the way governments try and work sometimes in particularly sensitive areas where they use what's sometimes called back channels to try and get communication back and forth so that they don't have to deal with all the static that comes from being in a very, uh, in a much more public um, setting and environment. Yeah. One of the areas you've done some great work in, Daryl, is the whole issue of speech act theory. Mm -hmm. And anytime somebody speaks in this kind of arrangement, whether it's a government source or a church source, there's always an intention behind that revelation. And a lot of times that's hidden. Uh, statements are made for public effect or to put pressure on somebody else. And that is all manipulative. It's contrary to the let's go straight to the person and talk with grace in the Christian environment. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people end up expressing opinions and uh, engaging in what I would call speculation about what's going on when they, in many cases, don't actually know what's going on. They've dealt with this snippet or that snippet, but they don't have the whole picture. Yeah, there may be 128 factors in the particular decision. Uh, two or three are brought out, and then it seems so simple because mm -hmm. all you're dealing with is those. And there's no responsibility that's involved in that either. Uh, and that, that picture of being a person who's actually making a difference in the context of grace when you engage in, the, in what's going on, I think is a biblical picture. Yeah. Uh, um. Let's talk about it from the positive side and think through, all right, so how, how should people, one, engage, one level, and secondly, reflect on what they see on the other? So let's take them in one at a time. Let, let's assume that I have a, a legitimate concern about something that's going on in the church uh, and, um, uh, and may even want uh, – 
for good reason to rally people, uh, you know, uh, about about the issue or to at least uh, engage. What are some What are some do's and don'ts in thinking through how to how to go about that? One of the things is the basic principles of Matthew 18. Go to the person involved first. Uh, take two or three wise, spirit-led people with you. Then it says, go to the whole church. And that kind of a process, I think, is a good way to do that. Uh, I'm, I just was this morning consulting with a friend who's in a church where it turned out the pastor is doing a couple things, like he's engaging prostitutes and misusing funds, got a slush fund to pay for his trips to the local parlors and such, mm. and they discovered this about a week ago. Uh, so what they did first was they tried to go to the pastor, he wouldn't talk to them, no surprise. Uh, they took some a couple of key leaders from the church and then from the church planning organization. Uh, nothing came there, so they sent a note out via Facebook, ironically, mm. uh, to the people of the church and called them to a public meeting, invited the pastor to be there, he didn't show up. Uh, and they have now, they will end up dissolving the church and start a new church, a replant. But I think the way they went about this was a good way to do it. They tried to follow those patterns. The First Timothy 5 pattern, don't entertain an accusation against an elder except on an occasion of two or three witnesses. You know, they followed that. There's absolutely a place to confront evil in the church. The church does not get a pass to say, well, let's pray and just do nothing. That is not biblical either. Mm-hmm. So, so on the one hand, there's an appropriate way to do criticism, and then there's a way that that it represents a, an abuse. Um, okay, so you're you're on the other end of this now. You're not generating the uh, response, but you're seeing things and and dealing with that. Maybe the advice I suspect is a little easier. But uh, but how do you how do you deal with what you're picking up across the net? And what should you remember about the net as you interact with this kind of stuff? Uh, the internet has some very responsible sources in it. And so what I want to do is go to responsible sources. So in the Mars Hill thing, for example, I absolutely refuse to go to the blog sites, the sensationalistic blog sites, uh, because the more I go to them, the more I increase their traffic and I end up actually making them money by going there. Instead, I went to responsible sources, religious news service, Christianity Today, groups like that, who were covering the story, yes, but were doing it with a, with a charitable and a trying to get both sides or all sides, as the case may be. So I think that's a key thing, is go to responsible sources. Don't increase the web track for the most sensationalistic places. And and those those sites, and I, I think you've mentioned Christian Today, Religious News Service, um, Christian Post, these, these sites are driven by people who are professional journalists who generally speaking are are trying to do their job very very yep. responsibly and you can see that even within the context of the stories because what the stories will inevitably do if they're journalistically well done is they will give you the the both sides they will give you the conversation that's actually taking place as opposed to only one side of the story yep yeah and so like Christianity Today which I I really enjoy what they're doing there they were trying every possible way as responsible journalists to talk to key people firsthand with attribution as the story developed. I think that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Ironically, I knew we were going to have this story. I saw uh, a story in the New York Times uh, on Sunday, November 9th, that uh, was characterizing World Magazine as a muckraking Christian Yes, mag- I saw the same piece this weekend. I thought, oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I know... Marvelonsky. <laughs> I, I know some other people work with the with world, and there is a piece where they're trying to be the investigative journalist. Now they are not muckraking. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that the New York Times would characterize them as a muckraking organization. That says something about the danger of being involved in this sort of thing and how how important it is to do it well. Yes, and and it's another indication of the way our culture 
is working with this. You know, I, 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 it's it's hard for me to talk about this topic and not take a, a real step back, kind of get a bird's eye view on the cultural influence of what's going on. And the cultural influence of what's going on, it seems to me, is is that we have developed a culture of it, it's kind of a combination between the gotcha journalism that you sometimes see and the ideological divides that tend to fuel our conversations where our goal is to defend a particular ideology or approach as right. opposed to working if I could say this way more positively towards some type of solution or resolution of the tensions that we find a person takes sides they uh, cherry-pick uh, evidence uh, and, and in the process, they only hear one side. You know, the, 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 my joke. We have a joke in our office. You know, uh, there are the people who watch Fox News, and there are the people who watch CSNBC, and we're not sure they're living on the same planet. You know, <laughs> uh, and so uh, 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 so if you look at the world through those lenses, you're looking at two very different sets of lenses and and two very different uh, ways of, uh, of seeing things. But when does the actual com- legitimate conversation without polemics take place between those kinds of points of view. And I think that cultural almost, uh, you know, worldwide federation of wrestling feel to the way we grapple with ideas today um, doesn't lead to healthy public discourse, nor does it lead to positive challenges when, when very legitimate issues are put out on the table. That's correct. I got accused in the public arena a while back of being a polytheist, which nobody who knows me would ever make that charge stick. But the irony was this discernment TV thing put out the charge. And if you go Google Gary Brashears, it still appears on the front page. And that was some time back. And one of the things I would encourage people as you're looking at various Internet sites Look and see, is there something there where they have contacted the person that they're charging stuff with? Because, of course, that's Matthew 18, is go to the person privately. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me with, with Mark Driscoll is when all the stuff was going around and he was being blasted on, on the, in the, all the criticism on the net, uh, he did not do the same thing back. He didn't blog about people. When you have issues with people, you pick up his phone and call them and talk to them. I think that's a much better way to do things. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I think it's, it, it, it's, uh, it, it to me is, is a disturbing way to interact, to, you know, just simply pump out the negative stuff and not talk directly to the people. You know, Gary, you'll identify with this. This goes way back, but when we were going through all the conversations that were happening on dispensationalism on our campus, and some of that has gone through the web. So, you know, I've been, uh, like you, uh, uh, the target, if I can say it that way. and I didn't do it, Daryl. I, <laughs> I know. Uh, but the interesting thing is, is how people would um, inevitably comment on motive. Yeah. Uh, why you did what you did, uh, what the circumstances were. They didn't know. They didn't have a clue. And lo and behold, um, the, the, the speculation was miles off uh, in terms of the, what the, the actual dynamics were. In fact, in this last week on Facebook, I actually had to respond to someone who issued a challenge, but they, they tried to protect themselves. They basically said on this very point, they said, um, uh, if um, this doctrinal statement was signed uh, you know, disingenuously basically was the deal. And if the leadership knew about it, that says something about the way these things happen and the way in which the slippery slope happens. That was the gist of what was said. That isn't quoting it because uh, right. I'm trying to not make obvious where this was. But uh, um, and so you know, I'm watching. I'm I'm a part of this exchange in this Facebook um, uh, group, and so I wrote back and I said, I cannot let this one go. I have to I have to respond. And I said, you realize that when you say this, you not only are questioning the judgment of the person who you think has signed a doctrinal statement without integrity, but you're also questioning the integrity of the people who have oversight over that process. And I and, and 
you know, I came back and I said, you know, th this was part of a long series of conversations. Everyone was very aware of what was going on. Uh, there was a there was a, a reflective process that was engaged in, et cetera. So the person wrote me back and said, you know, you know, why did you let this get under your skin? I did say if I didn't say this was the case, and I said, yeah, but your ifs leave an impression, and the impression is left there, and and I said. If you take the ifs away, then the whole thing shouldn't even have been mentioned. And, right. and so, you know, that's the kind of situation that you deal with. So I think that's a kind of a good specific example, if I can say it that way, of the way in which people uh, manipulate the thought space, if I can describe it, it that way. It really is. And to make that kind of suggestion is to come to the conclusion that there's factual reason behind it. Uh, and that just leaves the question, and that the biblical word for that is slander. Yeah, it just such things should not happen. Well, I actually, in my response, said that basically that's what was that was what was being done, yeah. and that's why I felt like I had to respond. Uh, and and the thing is, this person in the response admitted I don't know any of the details. I did say if I wasn't sure this was, but see, that's the impression. That's the if I can say it, that's the aroma or maybe the stench that was left stench. in the air. Okay, which which then the person picked up upon and is allowed to pass on from place to place to place. It this reminds me of a joke that I often say to students uh, when I deal with this, when I talk about the rumor mill related to the seminary. And the joke goes, um, the rumor mill at Dallas Seminary is as fast as the omniscience of God. It's just not as accurate. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and, and so, the point that I'm very much trying to make is, is that you hear a lot. It's omnipresent. It's all around you, but you need to filter out that a lot of what you're hearing may not actually be true. Yeah, and that's hard to do from somebody who's watching from a distance because they have even less context than the person who's making the charges. Exactly correct. And that's why I think we should avoid that sort of stuff because when we go and read that. We're filling our minds with trash, and I just don't think that's a good and godly thing to do. Yeah, and of course, the, we haven't even raised the larger theological question here of, granted, person may think they're well-motivated, granted, they may think they're protecting the church, granted, they may think they're doing something positive, but the problem is, is that actually they are undercutting uh, the integrity and unity of the church by the way they're going about it. Not that they're raising questions. Again, I want to make that distinction. But the oh. way they're going about it undercuts the unity of the church. And that's one of the things Ephesians 4 tells us we're supposed to work hard to protect. That's correct. That's correct. And the uh, thing that I've used as a guide in my own life is I try not to invest energy in anything that I can't make a difference in. Uh, I don't need to know all the details that's happening in such and such a church or such and such an organization if I don't have any connection with that organization. Mm -hmm. And for me to follow that is just to indulge in gossip on the recipient side, if not on the giver side. And again, Scripture tells us not to do that. I need to use my energy well to do good and godly things, which does include criticizing sin. I'm absolutely called to do that. Uh, but how we do it is critically important. Well, I think I think we've walked our way um, through through this uh, in, in a significant kind of way. Let's let's kind of turn the discussion a little bit, and let's talk positively about about what technology is able to do for us. And let me let me start by tackling one. I know that you work with a lot of online stuff. So do I. And I want to talk about an online experience that really changed the way I view online. It changed the way I viewed online education. Um, I uh, was asked to teach a class in Perth, Australia. Now, granted, if you know your geography, Dallas, Texas is some distance from Perth, Australia, okay? They're not exactly in the same neighborhood. Uh, and anyone who's taken that Qantas flight uh, knows what I'm talking about. So I was asked to teach this class for Perth, Australia. This was uh, about three summers ago. And the way they did it, it was a hybrid. It was designed to be a hybrid class, which is that you interact over the net with your students first, and then 
uh, you go for a week intensive class where you're meeting with them face to face because of course the criticism of online is is that you don't get to interact with the students at a personal level because you're not with them there physically uh, and this is where I learned uh, it's more complicated than that so I'm interacting for six weeks before I show up I'm asking a question a week to the students and I'm asking them to interact with them and I'm interacting with them individually. Fortunately, the class was of a size that could do this. It was 12 students. Yep. And so um, uh, there's nothing biblical in that number, by the way. And so, uh, and so I'm interacting with 12 students. One, we're in, a, in effect in a chat room in which they are both interacting with each other and they're interacting with me. And the thing that I tell people is, is that when I actually went to do that class, when I flew to Perth and walked in, into the room, I actually knew more about each student that I was interacting with, where they were coming from, what their strengths and skills and weaknesses were in dealing with the areas, and what I needed to do as a teacher interacting with them in class than I had ever had in any face-to-face -face class experience where the first day I walk in, I've got a new role and I'm calling role and I'm getting to know the students. It completely changed the way I thought about online and what technology is able to do. Yeah. Yeah, the technology adds a different dimension of interaction. And I, I don't think there's anything that's going to short, that's going to replace what happens in a classroom when you get a spontaneous, immediate discussion going on with full person presence. I don't think we're Gnostic. I don't think we're just minds and... and uh, Absolutely uh, agreed. But still, the sort of thing you're talking about, there is a chance for reflection and an engagement that happens via the chat room or by video thread. Uh, that you, so Things happen there that will never happen in the classroom. Because even in an active classroom like yours or mine, uh, half the students never engage unless we call them out. And I do. That's right, and, and you've, you've made a great point that sometimes uh, the student who doesn't say a word in class because of the way the net is set up, they have to engage and step in. You do get to see them. Another thing that I sense you sometimes get in the net that you wouldn't get in a classroom is because the net seems to be so personal, you know, one-to-one, -one, even though I'm in a chat room, it's still one-to-one. -one. I, don't, I don't feel the presence of the class around me as I'm typing at my keyboard. You, you actually get the person probably um, uh, coming out and revealing more about where they are than they would if they were in a classroom of 30 people and they're wondering, well, what are my, all my peers going to think about? Even though the irony is, as soon as they type it and put it up on the net, everyone's seeing what they're saying, but they don't think about it that way when they interact on the net, it seems like. Uh, they just say what they're thinking. And so you actually get... I would say oftentimes a more uh, direct glimpse of the person than you tend to get in a, in a classroom setting. The piece that happens in my classrooms is I get involved very personally with students and many of them end up showing up in my office later on for a discussion. They become extremely personal, but that same thing happens online where there's the uh, chat room kind of thing, the discussion threads or the video threads. Uh, but then they'll go offline and they'll send me an email or a Facebook message, private message, where they can be very, very personal and very private. So there's a lot of dimensions that can happen there with online kind of thing. The other thing that happens online education that's very helpful is the student can uh, go back and replay what I just said. When I say something that's incredibly profound, which happens about every 10 years. <laughs> or just complex. Says, yeah. <laughs> and they say, could you say that again? And in the classroom, I say, oh, I really couldn't in yeah. many cases. But, but online, they can push replay, and especially students who are slow processors or for whom English is not a first language, that can be extremely helpful for them. Yeah, and, and you make the point that one of the things that online uh, processes allow for is the student to kind of progress at their own pace right. as opposed to being uh, locked into the whatever the progress is on the syllabus. Uh, even in areas like language, that's very, very important because when you teach languages, you're compressing a year's worth of instruction sometimes in a semester, you're moving pretty fast, and if a student gets behind, the further you get, the behinder they get, and the worse it gets. And so it, it, become, it can become a problem in that regard. Uh, you know, I, I, what, I, what I like to say is, is that you've got to appreciate the nature of the medium that you're in. Uh, that, that each medium has certain strengths and weaknesses, and you need to be aware of what they are. Uh, certain ways of doing things are going to 
deliver certain things well and other things poorly. And that's why I've always been a fan of the hybrid class, because I think yes. the hybrid gives you a little bit of the best of both worlds. It allows the Internet to do what it's able to do somewhat uniquely, but they also get at least a dimension of personal interaction that allows you to recover what otherwise you wouldn't get if you just um, being there in a, in a distance and having an effective virtual class. Another thing that happened through the internet, I know several people who are refugees from countries uh, where they cannot go back because of political oppression and that sort of thing. With today's technology, I know some people who are having extremely effective ministry in closed countries via some creative technological involvement that could never happen otherwise. And I am just so impressed with what technology is allowing to happen in closed countries. Uh, something like version, for example, the, which has who knows how many translations on it these days. Uh, people on cell phones in countries where there's absolutely no other gospel witness can open up their Bibles and read it. And people tell me they're doing it in large numbers. Amazing results of technology. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a, one of the great uh, benefits of what technology gives to us because uh, you can minister to people from a long way away who would never be able to actually darken the door of your own school. They never would have a chance to come to Portland. They never have a chance to come to Dallas. And yet they can get at least uh, snippets of, of feedback and input uh, that that are made available to them. And then the, the, the irony is, is, you know, the person who ends up getting arrested in North Korea for leaving a Bible behind doesn't need to do it. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, because it, one, the other amazing thing is that in most of these countries, most people do have cell phones and do know how to access these kinds of sites if they're interested in doing so and are able to do so and are even able to do so with some awareness about how to protect themselves as they do it in case the government is nervous about that access. Yeah, and it can be done through chips that can be put in cell phones. I mean, there's so many creative ways to deliver sermons or instruction. It's just amazing. But the hybrid still, I think, is the best way to do things, where there's the online connection, but then a living presence as well. That gives kind of the best of all the worlds. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, uh, I think what all this, of course, means is that, is that the value of the specific local campus – we already alluded this in talking about the way in which libraries are a function today um, – uh, the idea of physical, a confined physical space being the place where this kind of thing happens um, is becoming uh, less important uh, as we think about the dissemination of, of education and information. I look at the algorithms are involved in, say, a Google search or something like that. I can get some really good information on most any topic simply by a Google search. And we used to laugh at Wikipedia, but it's become a very good resource. Uh, I think it's as good a quality as Encyclopedia Britannica in many cases because of public uh, accountability for what's put on there. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, basically correct. And, and, and the amazing thing to me now is, um, is the amount of resources that you get access to. I used to do a, a class, well, I still do the class, but I used to do a class on, on Second Temple Jewish backgrounds. So that means I was taking students through Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, Mishnah, Talmud, all the first century before and after resources that inform the way we think about Judaism so we understand the context of the New Testament. Testament. And I used to have to walk into class with this huge stack yeah. of books that I would pass around to students when I, you know, here's the Apocrypha, here's the pseudepigraphical, two volumes of pseudepigrapha, here's, you know, the one volume of the Mishnah. Couldn't bring the Talmud in, that would, I would have had to have brought a <laughs> cart, you know, to bring in all the volumes of, uh, of that. But the point is, is that, you know, and the, and the goal of the exercise was to have the student handle the book, see what it looked like, look inside, see what the structure of the of these books were and, and give them some familiarity because I figured familiarity would breed usage that if they if it wasn't a foreign object to them then they might you know actually go and pull it off the shelf this last year that I taught was the first year I had taught the course in which I didn't have to bring in a single volume yeah. everything was available on the computer I could post it up on the screen. They could see it electronically. We could. The beauty of it is we could all access the same text at the same time, read it, and process it together. You know, the advantage of that from a teaching standpoint is immense. 
and it shows the way things have very much changed. And something as obscure as the Dead Sea Scrolls just went on the internet just recently, and anybody can go back and look at pictures of the original Dead Sea Scrolls. Of course, that means you have to have the scholarly skills to read and to analyze what's going on. That's right. But the original sources are available, and it's just great. Now we just got to do the work to get educated so we can use them. That's exactly right. And so it, it does change very much the dynamics of the way things work and, and the possibilities that exist. And so, and, 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 and you can kind of read this in the way we're interacting with each other. So the, to, to the naysayers who sometimes say that the introduction of technology takes us out of the classroom, uh, removes the personal dimension, that kind of thing, that, that I think is an oversimplified uh, right. negative analysis of what actually is going on. Yeah, we have a Portland mythology of a guy sitting in his basement of his mother's house blogging around. And those people exist for sure. But the other reality is the competent uh, church leader who now has access to incredible resources to take up the work of the church to a whole different level if they have the education and ability to use that material wisely and well. You know, it, it's funny uh, how this works. I, I, I was doing a historical Jesus class this weekend. It meets at my house on Friday evenings from 7 to 10, and we're all gathered around the tables, 18 students in the class. And I had a Latin American student who is obviously here working in a second language, has made the effort to come, and he was sharing with the class his, his, his fear of having come here, having learned what he's learned, having had the access to the resources that he has, et cetera, and going back and plunging into ministry and being separated from the library, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, I feel this responsibility now of what I know I need to do in order to study a passage, and I'm not confident I'm going to be able to do it. And I looked at him and I said, if you think about this in terms of what you are, what you have access to technologically, because we our students get the Logos package as part of their uh, coming here, um, what you're able to do technologically, what you have access to, you don't have to be next to the library anymore. And I said, the the way things have changed is what used to take me two or three days to do in terms of research because I had to go to the library, pull books down the shelf, you know, actually. Access it by by hand, uh, read my way through it, etc. I said what used to take me two or three days to do, and in some cases took me hours to just get organized to do. Oh, uh, you know, figuring out what it is I had to look up and where it was in the library and where it was in the shelf, etc. Um, I said now it can take me only two or three hours. Right. And uh, and and so you have access to all this material. Um, because of what uh, technology is able to do for us. And yeah. so I said, don't despair, you know. Uh, you're really in a much better place than the person the person who graduated two or three generations ago should have had your fear, but you don't need to have it. Yeah, yeah. the technological stuff, when I go travel internationally to teach, even to fairly remote occasions, I got my little laptop computer here and with Logos and other things I have available on it, uh, I and Bible works. I've just got amazing resources. You should mention accordance as well. Okay, everybody Absolutely. got equal time. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of these things. Yeah. That are just phenomenal packages, each with their strengths, and many of us are multilingual in that sense. That's too. right. Uh, it's just and they're affordable for many people, not all, uh, and just the resources that are available. It's. But again, the responsibility to not just cite information, but to process it and integrate it for wisdom, uh, the, the temptation of people to just dispense information they get off of their computer is still a big temptation that has to be overcome. Yeah, that's a great observation that uh, just because you have access to the information doesn't necessarily mean that information that you have is is good information. You still have to process uh, what's what's going on. I, I love to use the example of um, of Jesus's remark about being able to pass through the eye of a needle and the and the very well circulated tradition that this is some type of an allusion to a city gate that a camel actually can get through uh, if the circumstances are right. To which I go, if you'll just read the context in which the response of the disciples is what you have just said is impossible. 
um, then you will get the sense that a city gate can't be in the background here. And despite how well circulated that idea is, the idea probably comes from a medieval description of Jerusalem as opposed to a first century description of Jerusalem. That's where it probably arose. Um, you still have to process the background information that you get access to. You know, do these sources come from the time period involved, or do they represent views that go back that far? Or are you citing a source that's much, much later in time? And does it can, all those kinds of things still have to be done? Mm -hmm. And the, the responsibility, again, to preach and not just dispense information so that you're working for transformation in your local community, that's still there. And it's still, the in the date of downloading all kinds of sermons, the temptation is to use the intellectual resources of the web, and they're there, but we still have to take it, not just abstract teaching, but we have to leave, preach for life transformation and community enhancement. Yeah, and that's, and that's, of course, one of the values of why a, a seminary exists, is that a seminary helps you to actually put those skills together. I sometimes get the question why, and not that this is supposed to be an ad for seminaries, but, uh, uh, but you know, why come to seminary? Why not let the church train the people for ministry in their own locations? Now, there is some contextualized training oh, yeah. that is definitely beneficial from being able to, to work in your own environment, in your own context. No one is, no one can, can uh, challenge that idea. But the flip side of it is, when you go to a seminary, you actually, when you pool the resources and the expertise that's involved in the assembling of a faculty, you know, some of whom have given their life to Old Testament, some of whom have given their life to New Testament, some have given their life to systematic, some have given their life to historical theology, some have given their life to talk about how preaching actually works, you know, yep. others to Christian ed. And you put that assemblage of faculty together, there is no church in the world, I don't care how mega they are, um, that that is able to put that kind of a combination of resources available to the student as they're going through their education and reflection, helping them develop expertise in each one of those areas. Yeah. Another resource for students, uh, for seminaries, is where school, good schools like Dallas and Western are amazing resources for current pastors to come back to and get help as well. It's not just students who get resources help. That's right, and of course the whole point of doing podcasts like this is to actually provide those kinds of resources for people, again, over the net, um, yep. so, that, so that people can get updated. I, I, you know, part of what our philosophy in doing these is to actually help a local pastor who's out of school and away from, uh, from the resource center, if you will, uh, keep up to date with what's going on by getting access to conversations about books and resources and topics and that kind of thing that are up to date that lets them know what's happening at the at the thought levels in terms of various uh, in various areas. One of the things that I keep watch on for myself is how much I'm getting caught up in the latest fad mm -hmm. because of the instantaneous 24-hour news cycle of the web. The, uh, the 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 I don't just the temptation of the sensational or the new thing is even more involved, and I can uh, get a lot of energy wasted on the greatest new thing or the greatest new book that comes out. And again, that's our wisdom to see: is this really going to make a change, or is this just the cool thing that's coming down the pike this week? Yeah, I've got a whole uh, category in my browser toolbar. It's called Emergent. It's all the Emergent websites. I don't know the last time I actually went to look at some of those uh, yeah. for, for that very kind of, of reason. And, and again, it isn't because that movement didn't have something to say or something to contribute, but it wasn't the be-all and end-all that you sometimes had the impression it was going to supply for us at the time when it when it emerged. Uh, so. Yeah. One of the things that's come out of the whole uh, Mars Hill brouhaha that we were talking about earlier, I've heard some pretty responsible people say the day of the megachurch is done. And I think, what a stupid statement. Mm -hmm. God has always worked through different kinds of churches. Mm -hmm. There are ups and downsides to any kind of church. And again, that's where the requirement that we have an educated discernment to assess what's going on and not just caught up in the latest news cycle is so very important. Yeah, and, and uh, this is a whole other podcast we'll probably have to come back to because I know you are, do a lot of work in ecclesiology. Oh, yeah. But uh, but I'm uh, 
I'm, I get very disturbed at the, at the sniping that takes place. This is actually very similar to the topic we were in in the middle of this podcast. It takes place between the person who's in the small church and the mega church pastor and the way they shoot at one another yep. sometimes. That's a very, very uh, bad place to be. So I, I do have a pastor friend who sends anything, anything negative that comes across the net about a mega church. He sends my way, you know, and, and to keep me up to date on on what the latest what the latest complaints are about about the the megachurch. And uh, my response often to him is to say, "But how often are these megachurches reaching people and touching people uh, and getting them to think about the gospel that that your church is not touching and reaching? Don't forget that." Yeah. And the internet can be uh, a temptation to get involved in this kind of criticism because you can always find us some friends who are actually uh, just interested in muckraking kind of mm -hmm. things. But they're on the internet, and you can certainly gather them around. You can form a Facebook group of, of mockers, and boy, I don't want to be involved with mockers. I want to be involved with builders. You can find those on the internet as well, but choose who you search with and who you associate with on the internet just as much as you do in your local environment. That's right. And keep in, keep in mind that God works through different structures in different ways. They have different strengths. I'm reminded of the, the old story I like to tell of Campus Crusade doesn't do what InterVarsity does, doesn't do what Young Life does, but I'm sure glad they're all there because they're each reaching different groups of people, yep. each of whom needs to hear what, what they're about. Uh, well, Gary, our, our time is, is disappeared, um, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about technology. I probably will have you back one day to talk about megachurch versus small church, and we can, you know, I do another one of these that relates to that, because I do know that ecclesiology is a love of yours, and you've oh, yeah. given a lot of thought to these kinds of questions and issues. But we appreciate you being a part of us, uh, the table and helping us sort our way through the technological web that now... Um, uh, surrounds us in our lives and uh, so glad you could be a part of us, our, our time today. Thank you. Appreciate you, Daryl, a lot. Yeah. And we thank you for being a part of the table and look forward to having you back with us soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.